Welcome to Global Questions by YDS, the podcast breaking down global politics for young people who want to know more. Hello, I'm your host, Joshua Kay. You're listening to Season 4, Episode 2 of our in-depth series on climate change and the way it's transforming the world we live in. Current estimates are around 58, 60 metres of global sea level rise are locked into the Antarctic ice sheet. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Alessandro Antonello, a senior research fellow at Flinders University, to discuss the way climate change is affecting Antarctica. Dr. Alessandro Antonello, welcome to Global Questions. Could you give us a bit of an introduction to yourself and to your research on Antarctica? Um, I'm a senior research fellow at Flinders University in Adelaide. I'm a historian interested in environmental history, the history of science and diplomatic history. And my main work until the present and into the present has been around Antarctica and how in Antarctica environmental and scientific knowledge and ideas are formed, how environments are managed and how environmental and scientific knowledge and ideas interact with geopolitics. So what kicked off a lot of your interest in Antarctica? I had a teacher, a supervisor at ANU, Tom Griffiths, very notable Australian historian, who was working on Antarctica as well. So he was one of the very few historians asking critical and interesting questions about the history of Antarctica and thinking about the human relationship with such a inhuman place or seemingly inhuman place, a place which is you know, no Indigenous human community because it's completely inimical to human life. Um, so, yeah, a fascinating set of questions around what it means to be human and how to live with Antarctica. And I understand you've actually been to Antarctica. Can you tell us what it's like? Is it just a great big sheet of ice with penguins, as I'm sure we all imagine it? Yeah, a good deal of penguins. Yeah, I've only I've been once to Antarctica. So just before COVID, actually, um, at the start of 2020, I was asked by IATO, which is the International Association of Antarctic Tour Operators, which is an international non-governmental commercial peak body around Antarctic tourism. I was asked by IATO to be an observer on a tourist ship. So it wasn't sort of a rugged, uh, sort of a, a rugged scientific expedition as you might imagine from earlier stories. It was a quasi-luxury cruise. Um, so I was practically a tourist and visiting just the very northern tip of the Antarctic Peninsula, which is just below to the south of South America. That area of Antarctica is actually incredibly mountainous, a bit like an you know an extra Alps, if you will. Um, so yeah, that was my introduction to Antarctica. And I'm, I'm partly glad it was because it allows me to tell people that the majority of people visiting Antarctic today are tourists. Um, you know, tens, mm. of, tens of thousands of people who are not scientists are having holidays. They are, they are seeing this magnificent environment. Yeah, we'll get into all of the tourism implications soon. But can you give us a bit of an overview of the politics of Antarctica? So the rules that govern it and which countries control it? Sure. The Antarctic is governed by a relatively unique uh, international system called the Antarctic Treaty System. And so Antarctica has this interesting combination of unrecognised national territorial claims with this uh, 
generally recognised Antarctic Treaty System. So in the first half of the 20th century, seven countries made territorial claims to Antarctica. Australia, New Zealand, Britain, France, Norway, Argentina and Chile. And those territorial claims, and you can look up a map to see where, where those wedges of territory are, those claims were never really recognised by any country. Um, the United States explicitly said in the mid-interwar years uh, between the First and Second World Wars that it didn't recognise those claims. And most other countries just didn't bother to say they recognised or, for that matter, didn't recognise those claims. The issue came about after the Second World War when uh, Argentina, Chile and Britain's claims do in fact overlap. And this led to pretty serious diplomatic tensions between those three countries and a couple of um, small shots fired incidents in the Antarctic um, in the early 1950s. Nothing terribly serious, but, you know, one wants to avoid any gunfire between, um, between navies. So that territorial disagreement between Britain, Argentina and Chile also really became more problematic because of the general Cold War context of the post-war years that America and uh, the Soviet Union, now enemies, were seeking to control and otherwise have influence over vast swathes of the earth. And so in, in search of a, a, a solution to the territorial disagreement um, and in the context of the Cold War, 12 countries, so the seven countries that claim territory, the Soviet Union and the United States, plus Belgium, Japan and South Africa, they came together at the end of the decade to sign the Antarctic Treaty, which is the sort of centrepiece, the, the main, the core of the Antarctic Treaty system, which guarantees the Antarctic for peaceful scientific uses. It uh, declares uh, it is an, a non-military zone and a non-nuclear zone. So um, no military activities are allowed in Antarctica and uh, nuclear activities are not allowed in Antarctica. There had been some thought in the 1950s that you could set off a nuclear device for scientific purposes in Antarctica. So that was no to that. It created an inspection regime so that any member of any party to the Antarctic Treaty can inspect any other party's scientific establishments. And it created these regular meetings uh, in which various scientific, technical, logistic questions were uh, discussed. Developments over the years have seen several other elements added to it, and really two need to be mentioned. The first is CAMELAR, so that is the Convention on the Conservation of Antarctic Marine Living Resources, CAMELAR. And that was negotiated in the late 1970s to deal with the rising issue of fishing in the Southern Ocean. And so in the 1980s, uh, having negotiated fishing, which was the more pressing issue, uh, the Antarctic Treaty parties did negotiate an agreement to regulate mining in Antarctica. That mining agreement was rejected by Australia and France. So Bob Hawke was the Prime Minister of Australia at the time and Michel Rocard, the Prime Minister of France, and they both rejected this agreement. And they said, well, actually, we want to ban mining in Antarctica. And this led to the, really the, the most important um, and final addition to the Antarctic Treaty System in this history, which is the Madrid Protocol of 1991, which is a comprehensive environmental agreement. So it's not just about banning mining, but it did ban mining indefinitely. But it also created a comprehensive system of environmental protection. So we effectively have Australia and France then to thank for that extra additional mining protocol, do we? Well, one might say that. 
it did require quite a bit of diplomacy, not just on Australia and France's part, but other actors had to come on board. And uh, some people would also argue that it really is the environmental NGOs of the 1980s, like Greenpeace, who really called close attention to these issues throughout the 1980s. Well, let's let's talk a little bit more about the environmental implications of climate change for Antarctica. In what ways is climate change posing a threat to the Antarctic environment? Well, it is a not a great uh, story, I think. It is, it is a story filled with a lot of very bad projections. Uh, so let's break down the Antarctic environment uh, in a few ways, just to make sure we understand what it is and what will be happening. Sure. So, of course, the major characteristic of Antarctica is, is the massive Antarctic ice sheet. The Antarctic ice sheet at its thickest is 4,800 metres thick. So it's enormous. And it's it has an um, average thickness of just around 2,000 metres. So it's really just a whopping great bit of ice, which has an equivalent sea level rise in it were it to completely melt. Uh, current estimates are around 58, 60 metres of global sea level rise are locked into the Antarctic ice sheet. Wow. The Antarctic has some some ice-free area where penguins and birds nest, for example, but that is vanishingly small part of Antarctica. I think current estimates, depending on which, uh, uh, which processes you use to estimate, probably 0.3%, so 0.3% of Antarctica is ice-free. So that's where the penguins and birds nest, but it's also where many of the scientific bases are. Now, all of these elements are, of course, right now seeing changes as well as unpredictable changes that will continue to happen depending on how human emissions go. So there's a lot of worry around how both atmospheric temperature increases as well as ocean temperature increases are undermining the glaciers in Antarctica and the Antarctic ice sheet. If major parts of the ice sheet melt... Uh, that will add very substantially to global sea level. Do you love Global Questions? We are a new up-and-coming podcast that is run by young people for young people. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us a lot and it helps us gain the reach that we deserve. So how are these environmental threats and I suppose the consequences of a warming Antarctica changing the way that countries perceive and interact with the continent? Well, in sort of positive and negative ways. So I think there's been a lot of talk, and there, I suppose, will always be talk that a changing environment, people will see opportunities. So are there opportunities, for example, to finally start mining in Antarctica if large areas lose their ice cover? Climate change, I think, has an uneven presence in Antarctic geopolitics right now. The Antarctic Treaty System is obviously dealing with the effects of climate change, but in uh, not in the sense of dealing with climate change itself and its root causes. Yeah. Do you think any of that's a byproduct of the fact that the Antarctica Treaty is nearly 62 years old now? And so in that sense, do you think it's fit for purpose in today's age when we're facing all of these climate threats? That's really one of the interesting questions of the moment. I am, I think, compared to some others, I am more bullish about the Antarctic Treaty's resilience. I don't think we're yet at a stage where I would say that the Antarctic Treaty is failing. I don't think it's failing. I think we need to think carefully about why it was successful in the past, why it is actually still successful, and how how it can be bolstered for the future. 
I mean, I think the Antarctic Treaty system will inevitably be dealing with issues um, and scenarios which are, you know, deeply imbued with climate problems. As the ice sheet does melt or uh, discharge more ice into the ocean, how will this change um, logistics? Um, It'll make uh, logistics perhaps more unpredictable. I think we need to remember that Antarctica is a remote and dangerous environment. So even if there is tension between countries, there is still absolutely an, an, an absolutely necessary level of cooperation. When icebreakers get stuck in sea ice, which happens unpredictably, even the best ships and the best captains can get stuck in sea ice, they need to be helped by other ships and whoever the closest ship is, is the one that helps. Do you think um, the level of cooperation on the ground, though, doesn't match what occurs perhaps in more of the international geopolitics? I I know, for example, Russia last year announced that it was considering exploring oil and gas mining. Does this reflect perhaps a reality that people and certain countries are becoming more and more willing to push the boundaries of the rules that exist in Antarctica? That's a really important way of framing the issue. It's interesting to note, despite being a system really focused around cooperation and internationalism, there are actually very few scientific bases that are multinational bases. So most scientific bases are just national bases. You know, despite outwardly being a system for cooperation, there are there are ways in which that cooperation or that internationalism has never really been fully articulated or fully manifested. And then, of course, there are the differing um, approaches, you know, testing the limits of the system. So Russia did announce that it had uh, done geophysical research into the continental shelf searching for oil and gas. The question is, you know, is this just a performative kind of statement to, you know, make people in the West sit up? I think it's very unlikely in the near term or even medium term future that oil and gas will be drilled and exploited in Antarctica. I suppose that's encouraging to hear that it's unlikely that it would actually happen. But is there danger in the fact that countries are even talking about it? Yeah, I mean, you know, this is the discursive approach to international politics, which I'm, you know, very, very sympathetic with that merely talking about something as a security issue or talking that you might do something creates uh, instabilities in the system. This is again where I I suppose I sit on the fence. I think cooler heads, that they see this as mere posturing, that there will be other issues. And I think the other issues that are more pressing than oil and gas, for example, are fisheries, as I've already mentioned, and the potential instabilities within the tourism sector, which we don't often think about as a geopolitical issue, but I think in Antarctica potentially has geopolitical flashpoints within it. You know, there are 29 consultative parties which have decision-making powers, and there are a handful more signatories to the treaty. 29 is an awful lot of countries. Why are so many countries interested in Antarctica, given it's so far out of everyone's way? Well, it's interesting that you should say that it's so many countries, because, of course, we need to remember that I can't remember the up-to-date figure that, what, 190 countries in the, in the, in the world or members of the UN. So in a sense, it is a minority framework, but um, there's, been a, there's been a politics around this over the last 30 or 40 years around, is this a rich white man's club? which it certainly was for much of its history. But now we need to remember that of those 29 parties, China, India, Brazil, and the United States are members. So that's, you know, we're already up to a majority of the world's population represented in the Antarctic Treaty system. There are a couple of countries who do want to become consultative parties in the next few years. I know Venezuela apparently wants to become a consultative party, but that is 
clearly off the table for a country like Venezuela, which is has its own serious internal problems right now. But Turkey, uh, Belarus, and Malaysia are really the three most likely to become consultative parties in the next few years. Turkey is building a base in Antarctica uh, as we speak. Uh, Belarus, too, I think is imminently to open its base. And they will cert- almost certainly seek consultative status within the treaty. What what interests do Belarus and Turkey have in Antarctica? Is it just that they want to be part of the club that everyone else is, or is it scientific research? What are their main motivations here? I think there is a sense that when they talk about Antarctica, they do talk about resources. Although they have to they have to pass a kind of scientific test to become consultative parties, they have to prove that they're doing substantial scientific research, hence establishing a base that in their sort of um, public and national discourses, that they are really focusing on a, on, a, on a future which involves resources. Again, how likely that is, um, is unclear. So I think there are multiple reasons um, being led by resources, but also around, you know, Turkey uh, certainly should be considered a, one of these large powers that considers itself that it should have presence uh, in various international fora. Do you think with all of these new nations joining that all of their various political and resource-orientated goals can be reconciled with the environmental and scientific goals that we have for Antarctica? Yeah, this is an interesting challenge. So some of these new newer entrants actually contribute very little to the business of the Antarctic Treaty Consultative Meetings. Um, they contribute not as much to the scientific effort overall. I want to go back to one thing, though, that you were mentioning, and that was the effects of tourism. So outside of all of the people that are going for scientific reasons or political reasons, there were 56,000 tourists visit Antarctica during the 2018 to 2019 season, and that was expected to increase to 78,000 during the 2019-2020 season. Do you think the continent can withstand this level of human contact? We do have um, up-to-date figures for 2019-20, which is the season I went in. So 55,000 landed in Antarctica and 18,500 or so went on cruise only. You do the maths, that is, that's close to the estimate there. And there were, well, I'd like to add this, there were 731 deep field visitors. So these are sort of ex- often some extreme adventurer people who get flown into sort of camps so they can climb mountains in Antarctica, but they count as tourists too. Mm. So yeah, can Antarctica withstand these tourists? It's a really good question and a really important one. And it, and it's one that's not merely an environmental question. So of course, 80,000 or so is a drop in the bucket of global tourism. I mean, it's, it's a tiny, tiny fraction of global tourism. Um, and it's worth contextualizing this that people might look at Antarctica and think, well, 80,000, that's not much for a giant continent. Well, the vast majority of these tourists go to the same area. The vast majority will depart Argentina, um, often Ushuaia, which is the port at the very southern tip of Argentina, and they will do a 5, 7, 12, 14-day tour or so of the Antarctic Peninsula. Ships uh, under a certain size can land their tourists in Antarctica, so physically onto the continent. The majority still land at a very small amount of sites. So when you think about the fact that last season, therefore, 50,000 or so people may step onto the same bit of land in a very short period, so only about three months of the summer, that does begin to constitute a very heavy human impact on a small number of sites. 
And so there's that very significant environmental issue. And that's, you know, that's under very intensive study. And I think um, to give IATO and the tour operators credit, I think they are incredibly sensitive to that. And they have a very good system for the members of IATO, which are the vast majority of tourists um, are landed with IATO members. They have a very good management system in which they know who is going to which sites. Um, some sites, for example, you know, you can't land on them one day after the other. You know, there have to be breaks. Even certain islands or sites, you know, you can't go to certain areas. You can only walk along certain paths. So I think IATO is very alert and uh, very proactive in dealing with the environmental question. I suppose the geopolitical question comes up then, which is, how could tourism be a geopolitical problem? So in jurisdictional terms, um, because you know there's no police force, as it were, in Antarctica, anyone who breaks the rules in Antarctica has to be dealt with by their own country, which is made more complex by the fact that shipping, once you include shipping and flags of convenience, um, you know, I was on a Bermudian flagged ship, even though it was a US company, you begin to create a sort of complex web of international law. And so as the tourism market expands and new entrants might be needed, for example, as the Chinese market grows, will there be China-only operators? And so a question is, well, if um, some tour operators from certain countries start to be seen to be breaking the rules or not following environmental protocols as best as, uh, as is hoped, does that start to inject another level of geopolitical tension if, for example, the People's Republic of China or the United States government doesn't say to its two operators, well, you've started to behave poorly in Antarctica, we're going to remove your license or we're going to prevent you from somehow from going to Antarctica. So I think that might be an interesting area which hasn't really been an issue so far, but in a sense, one never knows what will happen. Yeah, it sounds like there's so many different possible threats to Antarctica. Um, certainly all very, very fascinating. But Alessandro, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. If our listeners are keen to read some of your work or get in contact with you and discuss it more, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, you can look up my staff profile at Flinders University, which will have a full list of my publications. Um, I'm also on Twitter. Uh, so do look me up on Twitter too, if you want to uh, have a back and forth on social media. So happy to chat there. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to this in-depth episode. Make sure you follow Global Questions on Instagram and check out our website too, where you can leave suggestions and feedback. All the links are in the episode description. We'll see you next week.